don't know how many of you have ever heard the, uh, the advice that is given out that you, should, that you should never try to meet your heroes. Never heard that? No, that's, that's something that I've heard. That, uh, the, the reason for it is if you've, you know, your heroes, these are people that you, you idolize, people that you look up to, and in our minds we tend to, we tend to think of them as almost superhuman. They're just, they're just, they're just so incredible people that that if you we were to meet them, is, we think of all their public accomplishments, their public persona, the things that they have going for them, and all the reasons that we look up to them, and then, then, then we meet them in person, we find out, oh, they are actually just kind of human beings just like me. <laughs> like, they have frailties. They have, uh, their humanity is evident once you finally meet them and, and you start learning more about them and you find out, you know, this, this person is really not that special <laughs> in many ways, or they're, they're really just ordinary human beings, and we begin to think of them as less than what we had previously envisioned, and, and, and it's sometimes, depending on how that can go, someone that you once looked up to, someone that you might once have, have idolized, can almost become an object of disgust in our minds. I recall a time years ago when there was someone I held in very high regard, someone that I thought was very mature in the faith. A very wise individual, I, well, I began spending more time with this person, and I learned some things that uh, made me realize that, hey, this, this individual is perhaps not as, as mature in the faith as I once thought. I mean, scratch my head over some of the things that I saw, and I got to the place where I wondered why I ever looked up to this individual in the first place because of the areas of weakness within their own lives. It's just reality that... that when we, when we begin to elevate people too highly and then we start to get to know that person, we find out they're just, actually, they're just like me in a many, many ways. Perhaps you've had similar experiences with those who you have encountered over the years. Well, I have found that oftentimes the first time someone really begins to study the book of Judges, a similar dynamic can begin to unfold. We've heard all the amazing stories. We hear of Gideon, Deborah, Ehud, all these, these great heroes of the faith, right? And then we begin to study and we find out, wow, these individuals are really not all they've cracked up to be. They're, these individuals have serious shortcomings and weaknesses and failings within their lives. They are, they are far from perfect individuals, but rather they are deeply flawed individuals, and yet they were used tremendously of God to accomplish His purposes. But even though they were used of God, they are by no means models to emulate. In fact, the author of the book of Judges has gone to, to great lengths to help us see that as he's unfolding these stories before us, he's, he has two primary purposes in view as he is telling these stories. The first primary purpose is to highlight the graciousness of God to use these broken people to accomplish his purposes among a people who continually reject him and his will. They continually reject the word of the Lord, and yet God's graciousness is on display. Secondly, the author wants to demonstrate the increasing, the word that we've used is the increasing canonization of the people or the worldliness of the people, including the very leaders that God has raised up for this ministry. 
And again, as we've discussed, that this, this demonstrates that the people need a king. The judges were insufficient leaders. And we know from the rest of the Old Testament that the, that the human kings that will be raised up, they are insufficient leaders. David's not the guy. Solomon's not the guy. All these things point to the depravity of man, but the need for a divine Savior, a divine judge. Of course, we know at this point in history, looking backwards, that His name is Jesus Christ. But we see God at work, we see the, the mercy of God in, in bearing with the people who insist on doing everything they can to depart from the one true living God and serve after the false gods of the people of the land around them. And yet God is merciful and gracious along the way. We're about to move into the story of Samson. Samson is the last judge within the book of Judges, though there are several more chapters in the book of Judges after Samson dies. Samson is the final judge within this book. And in many ways, Samson represents everything wrong with the Israelite people. In many ways, the life of Samson, he, it stands in stark contrast to the, to the rest of the judges that we have seen. He's the only one who gets four chapters devoted to his life. He gets more time than anyone else in the rest of the book of Judges. He's the only one with a birth narrative. He's the only one to not fully deliver the people from their oppressors. In fact, it is in this cycle that the people not only fail to cry out to God for deliverance, but they seem perfectly content within their predicaments. And they twice show Samson their displeasure for Samson picking a fight with the Philistines. And yet, once again, we find God at work accomplishing His purposes in the face of a stubborn, godless people and their scandalous judge, Samson. Just this week as I was studying, I don't know if, you know, sometimes, have you ever wondered if, uh, you know, sometimes... our devices are listening to us, right? You, you, you say some things and you start seeing advertisements and stuff. Well, I'm studying the book of Judges and who knows, maybe it's something that I was, uh, you know, some research I was doing perhaps across the internet. Well, all those things are all connected. Well, there was an ad within my Facebook feed for Samson the movie. Samson the movie and this, this great story of a man that had accomplished all these great things and I watched the trailer and I'm just like this. This is not what Samson's about at all. Missing the boat on so many things about what, what the author of Judges is trying to communicate to us about the life of Samson. Missing the mercy and the graciousness of God in spite of all of Samson's failures. Well, we'll get into that over the next several weeks about the life of Samson and the things that that he did and his failures and the mercy of God even through those failures. But today we're just going to spend time in Judges 13, the beginning of the story of the life of Samson where we find God's mercy once again on display through his promise to Manoah and his wife. God, God is a God of, of promise. So much through the Old Testament is God revealing Himself through the promises that He makes, and then we see those promises fulfilled over the course of the Old Testament, and then finding their ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And we still have promises of God that we look forward to yet to be fulfilled one day. But we see God's mercy and we see the mercy on display through the promises of God. Let's, let's read our text. This is Judges chapter one, uh, 13, rather, beginning with verse 1. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Once again, the cycles, as we've discussed, those cycles going round and round. We have the cycle comes now, comes from security to sin to suffering. And God intends to send a Savior, but notice that there will be no supplication. There's no time throughout this cycle where the people cry out to the Lord in their oppression and in their distress. That does not occur. There's no plea for God for deliverance. Notice also that this is the longest period of servitude with the Israelites serving another people. For 40 years, this is twice as long as the previous cycle, of the, of the previous longest cycle. The previous longest was 20 years where they served a Canaanite people. And here they are in the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Perhaps the reason that it is so long is because the people never did cry out to the Lord, as we've discussed even from this morning. You, you do not have because you do not ask, right? Well, they didn't ask God for deliverance, and so they suffer for 40 years. Perhaps this represents the increasing canonization that the thoroughness They've forgotten God altogether, that there is no thought of God in their minds for them to reach out and call out to Him. And yet, even despite all of those realities, we still find the mercy of God on display. We see the nature and the character of our Lord in the promise of that is given. You know, if we were to be honest with ourselves, if we were just left to ourselves and left to our own devices, we would, we would be staying there, right? Like we know the Scripture says no one seeks after God, no one, no one desires Him. But God is rich in mercy, and just as He does not leave us in our sins, but He sent Jesus Christ into the world to die in our place, so here, consistent with His character and His nature, God raises up a deliverer. Let's read on in verse 2 and following. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, Be careful, and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome! I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then, drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. 
Just in that paragraph, there are several striking details there about the promise and about the narrative that as it unfolds. There, first, though the only person that is actually named in this narrative is Manoah, he does not seem to be the main figure in this story. In fact, he may be, in many ways, the most unimportant person in this story, and he seems to be rather clueless about all the events that unfold as we will continue to see things go on. Second, notice that though it is that the wife, she is unnamed, in many ways she is a central figure to this story. And that's a fact that as, as we consider the rest of the life of Samson as we get into it in future weeks, so much of the life of Samson seems to revolve around key women in his life. He, there was a, a Philistine wife that is also unnamed. There was a, there was a prostitute. There was Delilah. But there's also his mother. His mother here is the focus, though she is not named in this text. Third, notice the fact of her barrenness is highlighted not once, but twice. And we think today of barrenness prim- primarily as a, as a medical issue. But for, for those in, in this culture, it was a sign that the gods were against you. All right, and you needed to do something to appease the gods. Of course, we have all the fertility gods, right, and all the different things that we got. And we've discussed that at different times. Baal and the Astra, they were fertility gods. The angel of the Lord, by acknowledging the barrenness, the messenger was directly confronting the cultural stigma associated with that reality. Fourth, of course, there are the details about the child to, to be born. He is a, to be a Nazarite from birth. The rules for those under a Nazarite vow are found in Numbers chapter 6. And if you would actually turn there briefly for a moment, we're going to read that text. And we see that a vow was to be taken by someone voluntarily for a limited period of time. And, and as we turn to Numbers chapter 6, we find the we're not going to read the whole chapter, but that is, all the details are there. But just, we're going to read the first six verses of Numbers chapter 6, where we find this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, a vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and he shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy." He shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow long. All the days that he shall separate himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. And if we read on, we would see the the continual explanation of all of these things. But we have the three main prohibitions within that Nazarite vow. No wine, no shaving, no dead bodies. You're to separate yourself. The purpose of this is you're to, he was devoting himself unto the Lord for a particular purpose, for a particular period of time. So he's to abstain from these things as signs of that commitment, of that vow. Well, Samson is to be a Nazarite. And as we go back to Judges 13, we see the details there. He, Samson's Nazarite-ness was very unique. 
In Numbers 6, we see that this is a voluntary vow that someone could undergo when they were seeking to separate themselves unto the Lord for a specific purpose. Samson's to be a Nazarite from birth. Even, even from conception, even his mother is not to be partaking in these things in order to preserve the sanctity of Samson. From birth all the way unto death, this is to be his life. He's been marked out by God since before his conception for a very particular calling. And what is that calling? Beyond the vow, what is it that he is supposed to do? Verse 5, the end of verse 5 says, He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. It's interesting, it says that he will begin to save it's not something that's going to be complete, but it's what he's going to begin to do. Finally, notice her reaction is Manoah's wife's reaction to this message. She immediately runs to Manoah. She explains what happens, and, and she confesses that, okay, I didn't ask for a name. I, I, I don't know where he came from, but I, I can tell you this. This guy was special. That this guy was unique. That there was something about this guy. In fact, he had, he had the appearance of being a, a, the angel of God. It's interesting in this text that uh, she says that he looked very awesome, right? That's how she describes him. We use this word awesome in, in quite casual ways today, right? It's just, oh, man, that's so awesome. That's so cool. We think of it that way. But she's trying to communicate that this guy, he, he really was awesome. Like there was something really spectacular about this individual. His appearance led her to, con- con- to conclude that this was the angel of God. However, we should notice that in verse 3, the narrator identifies this as the angel of the Lord, and he uses the, the covenant name of God. That's the capital L-O-R-D. That signifies the Yahweh, the covenant name of God used in the original text. But when she says that she, he, he looked like the angel of God, she uses the generic Elohim. It's not clear exactly what, how she was processing this. It, it seems, again, that we're, we're talking about a time and a day when, when the canonization of the people was so thorough that perhaps they were so far from the Lord that she did not recognize the covenant name of God in that moment. And yet she recognized that there's something special here. There's something unique about this individual. In any case, as she relates the information to her husband, she accurately explains what it was that was told to her. This promise that she would have a son and the command not to eat or drink wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite. And so we have the promise. A promise that represents God's kindness to His people. A promise that, that represents God's kindness to this, to this couple in particular. One of the things that made the previous judge's life so tragic, the end of his life, that Jephthah story, of course, as, as he made that rash vow to the Lord, he ended up sacrificing his daughter. And, and the, the end of the text speaks of that they mourned her virginity 
One of the things that makes that story so tragic is that though he was appointed as king by the people, he had no progeny. There's nothing to establish his line moving forward. Here was a couple who likewise also had no children, but now all of a sudden they are promised a son. They are promised a son who will be an agent of God and an agent of judgments upon the Philistines. So we have the promise given. Second, we have the promise reiterated. The promise reiterated, and the slides aren't advancing from me, so you'll have to do it back there. As we read on, we're going to see now as, as uh, Manoah's wife has communicated these things to Manoah, now his response, and again, in many ways, Manoah really does seem like the, the most clueless individual within this story. He, just, he doesn't really seem to catch what's going on, and he's, he's always asking for more than what the Lord is willing to provide to him. Look at verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God which you have sent again, which whom you have sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. Apparently Manoah was, was not satisfied with the with what was communicated to him by his dutiful wife. Manoah he prays, he asks for additional information, and remarkably Manoah God responds to Manoah's prayer. God didn't have to do that, but as we read in verse 9, it says, God listened to the voice of Manoah. Again, God's mercy here, God's graciousness. God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So God listens to his plea, and, and, and he, he comes again once again, but this time he appears to his wife again, and not directly to Manoah. The Lord seems to be intentional about this in order, this whole, all this aspect places the wife in the place of prominence within this story. Like, like the angel of the Lord is coming to his wife twice now. Let's read on verse 10. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat anything unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Again, Manoah, he, he keeps asking for more information. He says, okay, you, you, you've told me this information, now, now tell, me, tell me more. I, uh, we want to know more things here. But the messenger does nothing except for reiterate what he has already communicated. He says, no, everything that I said, just, just she needs to be careful that she does what I said. This may be a trite illustration, but I'm reminded of that one character in the, in the Mandalorian who ends all discussions with, I have spoken. Right? That's the end of the matter. It's the end of the discussion. I have spoken. That's it. You're asking for more information. Now, what I have said, that should be sufficient for you. But Manoah continually wants more. 
Verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. The angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. Again, Manoah seems to want everything that he can't have. (laughs) Give me more information. No. Stay and eat with us. No. Tell me your name. No, I'm not going to tell you my name. The angel refuses to tell his name on the basis that it is wonderful. And that word communicates something that is incomprehensible. And he says, See, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. It is, it is incomprehensible. It is too glorious for you to comprehend and for you to grasp. It is beyond human understanding. You know, we've discussed before as we've moved through the book of Judges that every time the angel of the Lord appears, that it seems right and best to conclude that this is the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Well, this statement by the messenger would be another clue that that is the case. His name is too glorious. This isn't just, this isn't just a mere created being here. No, this is Jesus Christ, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord. And this is the conclusion that Manoah is going to draw with the events that are going to continue to unfold. Verse 20, when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, and now she does use the covenant name of the Lord, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. Well, now Manoah finally gets a clue about who it is that he was dealing with and who he was discussing with. There's several details of this that, that make our minds go back to the story of Gideon. If we recall that story and how Gideon offered up an offering to the Lord and, and it went up and, and the angel of the Lord disappeared from him and, and Gideon was afraid and he was afraid that he was going to die now because he had seen the Lord. Well, Gideon was reassured by God himself in that story, and here Manoah is reassured by the the impeccable logic of his wife. If God intended to kill us, we'd probably already be dead, right? He he would not have told us all these things. He's given us this promise, and this promise that he's given us, it wouldn't come true if he intended to kill us, so he's probably not going to do so. But we see that at every turn for Manoah, he wants more information or, or he concludes falsely based on a recognition of true information. But Manoah wanted more. And God didn't have to do anything for Manoah whatsoever. 
When God appeared to his wife and and gave that instruction, that, that really could have been the end of it. In his graciousness, he appeared again. He condescended in mercy to reiterate the promise. And as he did so, his message was clear. I, what I have already given you is sufficient. Now you must live in obedience to it. I don't know about you, but I know for my part, it's easy to identify with Manoah. I always want to know more, right? Lord, give me more information. Help me to, to know more things. Sometimes I, you study God's Word and you, you wrestle with different truth. You wrestle with different things. Lord, I want to know how all this fits together. There's, there's things that I don't understand yet. God has given us His Word. He has given us that which He intends for us to know. Deuteronomy 29.29 is a tremendous verse that, that I would encourage all of us to memorize. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are things that are too beyond us, things that are not intended for us to know. They belong to God. But the things revealed to us and to our children forever. God has revealed certain things to us, and those are the things that we embrace. Those are the things that we hold dear to us. And even though Manoah was continually asking for more information, the Lord essentially says to him, No, what I have given you is already enough. My grace is sufficient for you. My word is sufficient for you. Now live in the light of it. Manoah stands in contrast to his wife. She seems to accept everything from the Lord. She's able to accurately reproduce what is communicated. And she offers a logical explanation of the events as they unfold at the end. And just as a foreshadowing of what is to come in the chapters that unfold. If only Samson and his choice of women were as wise as his mother. But sadly, that is not going to be the case. Nevertheless, we do see God's mercy in the promise that is given, in the, His mercy in the promise as it is reiterated, and finally in the promise that is, as it begins to come to fruition in its fulfillments. Verse 24, as we close out the chapter, we see the promise begin to be fulfilled. Verse 24, And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan, between Zorah and Astol. Astol. Again, as we see this, there's, there's, no, there's, no hints of, there's no hint of repentance on the part of the people. Not even a trace of crying out because of the suffering. And yet, God is at work raising up a deliverer. Because that's just the kind of God that He is. A merciful and a gracious God who reaches out to those who would have nothing to do with Him on their own. I'm sure if each of us reflected upon different times in our lives, we could look back and see, God was so merciful to me in this period of my life. He was gracious to me, and He's given me blessings that I did not deserve. I'm sure each of us could identify things where that is the case within our lives. 
And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, really that is exhibit A. God has given you His mercy, His grace in saving you from your sin through your belief in Jesus Christ. That's a blessing that you do not earn, that you do not deserve, and yet He has given it. Each of us, we are all prone to desire more than what God has determined is sufficient. But we should praise Him that this that when we do have times of this, when we do have, have sinful desires of desiring that which is not meant for us, that God does not meet that, that with immediate judgment, but rather He gives us additional mercy for our lives. God made a promise to Manoah and his wife. That promise represented the mercy of God for the nation of Israel and for that couple in particular. God had continues to operate in this fashion by giving promises to His people, promises that represent His mercy that extends even to us. We have the promise that all those who recognize their sinful condition and who will come to terms with the reality that they cannot save themselves, that they will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will be saved. That is a promise from God and represents His mercy to us. Scripture says He will abundantly pardon. For us who have already believed, there is a promise of His return and the inheritance that we will share. Even though we all stumble in many ways, those who are His children will never be cast out, but rather will be welcomed into His eternal kingdom. We see God's promises and the mercy that is represented through the promises of God. And He calls us to embrace those promises, to rest in those promises, and to trust Him. Even when there's details that we don't see, even when we would desire more information than than what He has given, He calls us to rest in the promises and the information that He has given in His Word. So as we close our time today, I do pray that, that God would help us all to be resting in the promises of God, to be resting in that which He has made clear and made known to us, that we would not seek to go beyond what is written, but rather embrace the things that He has revealed to us, that we would live in light of that. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that though we all do stumble in many ways, Lord, though we are sinful, your mercy extends to us afresh and anew. Your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. I thank you for this revelation of, the, of your steadfast faithfulness to your stubborn people who, though they were not crying out to you, though they sought no mercy from you, you provided that in your graciousness. And we thank you, Lord, that you extend your mercy and your graciousness to us as well. May we always look unto your promises and to embrace your promises. Lord, you are a faithful God. We see how you have fulfilled your promises in the past, and we know that you will keep your promises moving forward. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, that though our, 
our sins are many, your mercy is more. That we do not deserve your, your intervention into our lives. You graciously provide that for us. We thank you. We praise you for these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.